When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everybody? It is Ricky the Blue, the associate editor and Virginia Tech football beat writer for TechSideline.com. Welcome back to another episode of the TSL podcast. As always, I'm joined by Will Stewart here in front of me, Chris Coleman to my right. And guys, we have a lot to hit on in this podcast. This might be a bit longer than normal, but before we dive into all this, it finally happened. A 16 beat a 1, and yes, of course, it was Virginia Tech's rival, UVA losing to UMBC in the first round. Guys, did you see that one coming? No. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> think anybody did. And it's not it's, it's not so much that they lost, per se. They said like, they got ran out of the building. I, I always envisioned when a 16 seed would beat a 1 seed, it would be like on some kind of last-second shot or something. Yeah. Um, I didn't think it would be a 20-point blowout. <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen an upset that um, of that magnitude, Will? Yeah, I saw Ricky Stokes' Virginia Tech teams actually beat teams. <laughs> <laughs> man. Oh, man. Will out here throwing shade early on in the podcast. Um, I think, you know, Chris talked about the, the margin of victory, but I think uh, what was surprising to me, not surprising, but what I noticed was that uh, UMBC got into the lane and, uh, you know, there in the second half they were making everything they threw up. Yeah, and and, and yeah. I, I went over on Twitter and I said, I remember games like that in my youth where you just everything you shot went in. Mm-hmm. And somebody made some crack. Of I don't course. remember any games like that. Usually everything I shot went off the rim. <laughs> I, I do remember one game as a, as a young person where we, it was pickup ball and I recognized the guy I was guarding. I was scared to death of him. And for some reason, I had a great game. And by the end of the game, he was putting his hands on his knees going, oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, it happens. That was one out of thousands of pickup games in my youth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was not a great basketball player, but everybody a has that. A squirrel finds an acorn every, every now and then. Everybody has that, that game, you know. Really quick, is UVA's, uh, is UVA's system kind of fatally flawed? Oh, I, I don't know about that. Um I've been trying to, to work that out. I'm not sure if I've well, come I, to I, I'm, a I'm sure UVA yet. fans have been having that discussion ever, ever since Friday. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you keep going, if you keep getting yourself in, in a position to be a number one and number two seed, you will eventually win it by, by or you by law of averages. Law of averages. Um, uh, or you, at least you'll eventually make the title game. I mean, I was convinced for years and years that Gonzaga would never make the title game, right? Well, they finally did a couple of years ago. I mean, if you keep making Last the tournament year, yeah. year after year, uh, you will eventually you know, beat down that barrier. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's any kind of fatal flaw. I, I think maybe uh, – I, I, so, I, I think sometimes – in a game like that, I think you've got to recognize that UMBC is just making their shots, and you've got to give your own players a little more offensive freedom. Yeah, um, and that was one of the criticisms after the game was that Tony Bennett may have trusted his players in his system too much. That's that's and fair. that he and then he he was but, unwilling to kind of get away from that. Yeah, but but you know if you if you change during the middle of the game like that, what does it tell your team? Right. What does it tell him? Is it does it tell him that everything? All our philosophies are wrong. 
And, and Buzz mentioned that. Buzz mentioned, uh, I don't remember which game it was, but he mentioned giving up. That on was the Louisville game. It was a Louisville. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I thought about going back to the old defense. Here's one of my big takeaways from that. It's not so much about UVA as it is about UMBC. Um, I went to two or three Radford University games this year, including their Big South Championship and including their game against Villanova. And I don't want Radford University fans to be upset with me, but – um, there's a big difference between UMBC and RU. RU does not – they've got some good players, but they do not have a guy like Mora. Yeah. Or, on Lyles. his best nights, a guy like Lyles. Radford University doesn't have anybody like that. Now, they may be developing a guy like that. They've got a really good freshman guard. But there was there was no chance Radford University was going to do to anybody what UMBC did to UVA. I think – at watching UMB now, I'm basing this on two games because I watched them play against Kansas State. Also, right. UMBC, that's better than a 16 seed. A 16 seed has no no chance in hell, and that's kind of the way I. Sorry, are you? But that's the way I look at you when you're playing Villanova or Duke <laughs> or UNC or somebody like yeah. that. I've seen ten years ago, Raffer, one of Raffer University's best teams had no chance at all against North Carolina. Um, but that UMBC team I saw, th- those two games I saw, man, they're, they're actually pretty good. I thought UMBC, you know, they, they made some tough shots against UVA and they made some open shots against UVA. They missed all their open shots against Kansas State. It, you know, they, they didn't score a lot of points. And if you if you look at the box score, you're thinking, man, they, they didn't have a lot of looks. So they had some looks in that game. Oh, they, they had some them. looks. Yeah, yeah, second half, they had, in particular, had plenty of open mm-hmm. three-pointers they just didn't make. Well, I think everybody was certainly shocked, and I think everybody was rooting for UMBC there against K-State, especially since their mascot is a dog, and everybody <laughs> loves dogs. So we're going to go ahead and dive into Virginia Tech basketball, but before we do that, we do have to thank one of our sponsors here at Tech Sideline, the Fisher Law Firm. The Fisher Law Firm is Virginia's trusted DUI and traffic defense firm dedicated to defending individuals charged with traffic-related offenses. They have offices in Blacksburg, Abingdon, and Charlottesville, and can serve the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. Whether you are charged with driving under the influence or speeding, the Fisher Law Firm realizes that each case is important to the client. The firm does cases throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia and regularly appears in over 30 jurisdictions. Last year, 98% of their caseload was traffic offenses, and to date, the firm has defended more than 15,000 people charged with moving violations. For a free consultation, you can call them anytime, day or evening, toll-free at 1-800-680-7031, or you can email them at info at FisherLegal.com. Again, the number is 1-800-680-7031, and you can email the Fisher Law Firm at info at FisherLegal.com. Thank you so much, guys, for sponsoring the podcast. All right. Virginia Tech loses to Alabama 86-83 in the first round. Um, Kind of a disappointing finish, I think, for a lot of Tech fans. I think Tech felt like they had a good chance going into this game. Uh, Bama's offense, not very good coming in. They were pretty uh, efficient defensively. Yeah under 500 in the SEC, which is better this year, but uh, certainly not up to to the level of the ACC, or at least the perceived level of the ACC. Um, Chris, your biggest takeaway from this game? I expected it to be in the 60s. The way, you know, Alabama's a good defensive team and the way Virginia Tech had played defense over the last month or so, I was really surprised that it ended up being in in the 80s. Yeah. Um, But, you know, sometimes that's that's tournament basketball. You, you You don't exactly know what to expect when you're playing a team that you're not familiar with. Your players aren't familiar with them, your coaches aren't familiar with them, and vice versa. So that game ended up being much higher scoring than I thought it would be going in. And one of the biggest reasons that it was is that John Petty, uh, one of Alabama's wing players, 
6 of 8 from 3, 20 points. Um, coming into the game, he was billed as kind of a hot or cold guy, uh, and he was certainly hot against Tech. I'm just shaking my head, you know, rolling my eyes. <laughs> was made, like, of he course, made, he made on one cue. shot the next game against Villanova, I think. Only took about five, you yeah. know. And um, no, I didn't watch that. I only we listened to it on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Bama shot sixty percent from the field overall, so it wasn't like he was the only guy. It's it's that was hot. It's just well, they had eight dunks. You know, they yeah. they, they got penetration. Well, they had eight yeah. dunks. Let me ask, it was back let to me ask you guys defense. this: um, was was Bama's hot shooting more of a pro, uh, um, a factor of them just making shots? Oh, or was I, it Tech having a lot of honestly, defensive lapses? I, I don't know, Ricky. We were courtside, and we were on the other end. Like, we were behind a basket, basically, courtside, right on the baseline. Yeah. And it's a lot harder to watch basketball when you're down that low. I haven't seen the game on TV. I, I, I don't know what happened. You probably don't want to see the game on TV, well, I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it, it's, it, well, it's just hard for someone, if you're not used to sitting in a place like that, like a coach is, um, it, it's hard to be able to break down a game when, a different angle. when you don't have a bird's eye, eye view, so to speak. So I really don't know. I do know that Tech struggled with, with penetration, which they hadn't done since, uh, you know, I guess that uh, go back to the Miami game right before he switched uh, Buzz switched defenses. Yeah. Um, Alabama was able to get penetration. And as Buzz put it after the game, the help defense, the second line of the help defense, whatever that means, wasn't particularly <laughs> good. Um so I, I think it, I think it was both. Uh, I do think Alabama had a better shooting game than they would have normally, but uh, I, I do think that Tech did not play a good defensive game. The the penetration surprised me, um, and when you take that penetration, the eight dunks, and then a couple of uh, follow ups on um, on offensive rebounds, and you combine it with jacking up stuff from three point range, and I, I got a bad feeling early on because. Uh, one of their early three-point shots was banked in. Mm-hmm. And that has a psychological effect on a team in, for Alabama in a good way. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't the only shot they banked in. I believe they banked in another one in the second half, which I haven't rewatched, and I really don't remember all the details. Um, I felt a little better that Virginia Tech was shooting so well, but I remember sitting there at halftime, 43-41, both teams lighting it up and thinking – if one of these teams goes cold, I really hope both of them go cold. And, you know, unless the one that goes cold is Alabama. But, you know, they just – they were very – Alabama was very consistent. 59% in the first half, 61% in the second half. I tweeted out in the first half that um, – because th- this was a point where Colin Sexton had two fouls and was on the bench. And, yes, Kerry Blackshear was also on the bench and Justin Robinson was on the bench for a part of that as well. But I felt like with Colin Sexton on the bench, Virginia Tech had to take advantage of that. Bam was already a poor offensive team. You're you're taking their their premier star player off the floor. Their best penetrator. Exactly. I felt like Tech needed to pull away during that stretch, and obviously, obviously they didn't. And the other thing that really stood out to me was that Tech was in the bonus with 15 minutes left in the second half, mm-hmm. and they failed to consistently get to the free throw line. And I felt like it, that was just a golden opportunity given to you right there on a, on a platter, and, and they just didn't take it. Well, somebody on our, our boards made a very good comment, and, and I, I generally agree with this. When you have, when you have a pretty egregious imbalance in fouls early in, early in a half, whether by design or just by chance, the refs tend to even that back out, unless you're playing at Duke, which plays by <laughs> – it's a whole different set of rules down there. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, when, when, when Alabama picked up six fouls in the first three and a half minutes or whatever it was, two and a half minutes, it was some ridiculous – you just kind of sat there and went, eh, they're going to even this thing up. And, and there were a couple of times where I think Justin Robinson went in the lane and did not get the benefit of the call. Well, speaking of which, let's go ahead and talk about it. The charge call that was called on Justin Robinson late there in the game, um, he gets called for the offensive foul. Buzz picks up the technical immediately afterwards. Um Chris, just kind of walk us through what you saw in that play I didn't there. see anything, Ricky. I was tweeting. I was trying to cover the game, and I haven't seen a replay because <laughs> they didn't show a replay in the arena. So they I have, they I didn't have, show a replay in the arena? No, so I have no idea what happened. As much time as they spent trying to figure out, and no. then you have the technical afterwards? No, I have no idea what happened. Man. I, I looked at some – I was looking at Twitter and some experts – with you know quote-unquote experts well or actual experts well they're uh they're national college basketball writers and stuff uh and they were saying it was a bad call but i don't know some people say it was a our photographer swears it was a good call so i don't know it it was questionable either way yeah um it was close it was close um i don't know uh but will have you seen a replay of it i have not watched i have not rewatched the second half and and this actually kind of brings up an, an overall point I'm just not a guy to talk about officiating. I'm not either. I really am not. There are times where we will write a game recap or write a column about a game, and the response will be, you didn't talk about this call or that call. You know what? Because refs are like the wind. Sometimes the wind blows. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the refs make good calls. Sometimes they make bad calls. And I said on our message boards a couple of weeks ago, I said, I don't understand this, this feeling amongst fans that refs will be perfect. Coaches aren't perfect. Players aren't perfect. PA announcers aren't perfect. Radio broadcasters aren't perfect. People make mistakes. Refs are going to make mistakes. Podcast hosts are not perfect. You know, I mean, writers are not perfect. What is this expectation that refs somehow have to be perfect? That's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's part of the game. Suck it up and move on. If you'd made more of your shots or if John Petty had missed more of his shots or Tech had played better defense, we wouldn't be sitting here fussing about a charge call late in the game. You're talking about, I don't know how many possessions were in that game. Let's say it was 75. Both a te- ton. <laughs> both, both teams like to push the tempo mm-hmm. and things like that. So that was a high possession game. So you were talking about one possession. Um, Virginia Tech, you know, yeah, it was an unfortunate call. But if Virginia Tech does a better job stopping penetration on Alabama's 75 possessions, then we're not we're not even talking about that play matter. And I only get upset at officiating if, if, let's say, Virginia Tech is playing a more talented team and they played as well as they could possibly play and you know they got screwed over. They were legitimately robbed, or, right, or some, yeah. something like that. And that rarely happens. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I just I, I, I I'm not a person that that, that gets into officiating. I, officiating in football bothers me more so than officiating in, in in basketball because you've got so many possessions in basketball. Well, really quick before we leave the officiating part, I do want to talk about Kerry Blackshear's fouls. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like he just could not stop fouling whenever he was on the floor. Only played, I believe, eighteen minutes. Is yeah, that right? Sounds right. Um, did he just kind of seem out of it? Uh, Blackshear gets frustrated easily. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, you saw his fourth foul. It was not. It was ninety-four feet away from from the basket. He missed a shot, um, and went for the offensive rebound and just just went through the guy. And yeah. it was clearly a foul. I could have called it. I would have called it on him. He was frustrated early in the game. Um, he went for a shot earlier in the game, and, and I could actually hear it from where I was sitting. I could hear the smack. And I don't know if he got smacked on the arm. The and Tech head, was at the, the other neck. end of the floor at this point from Chris. Nope. They were on my they end. Were on... They were on my end. This was first half. Tech was shooting on my end in the first half. On our end. 
Okay. I could hear the smack. Well, that's weird. That meant they were shooting in front of their own bench in the first half, and it's usually the other way around, isn't it? It's the, uh, it's the other way around in Castle, I, yeah. I think. Okay. Um, but I, I don't, you know, right. going to road anyway. games, I don't know what's normal. Anyway, what's proceed. Not. But uh, I could hear the smack, and uh, he and he turns around after he misses the shot, and the ref is right next to me, so I could read his lips and I could hear him, and he goes, that's a bleeping foul. Carey said that. Carey said that, and he was right. But he was frustrated early in the game because of that, I think. And uh, I do think that there are some times where players on this team, they let things bother them. You know, with the Chris Clark technical fouls this year. And I think some of – I think Blackshear – there have been some tough calls on Blackshear this year from from the officials. Now, here's my one complaint about officiating is sometimes I think they're a little ticky-tacky when it comes to Kerry Blackshear. Now, maybe that stands out a little more because he was the only player on the team taller than 6'6 this year. Yeah. Um, maybe it mattered a little more. But he also got himself in trouble too many times with fouls far away from the basket. I think that hurt him against, I want to say it was Florida State when he got in foul trouble, fouling people out near midcourt. And then, obviously, against Alabama, you know, fouling a guy 94 feet from the basket after he missed a shot. And uh, those are frustration fouls. And, and he's... He's got to work through those. He, he's got to be a smarter player when it comes to stuff like that as he gets older. Two things. First, Kerry Blackshear was subbed back in with four fouls at the 545 mark yeah. in the second half. Mm-hmm. He picked up his fifth foul with 528 that's, left on the clock. That's, uh, that's normal. I remember earlier this year going through the box scores and analyzing his fouls. And it was an offensive foul. And so, so many times he would pick up another critical foul as soon as he gets put back into the game. Or sometimes he'd be in foul, spend the first half in foul trouble, and within 30 seconds in the second half would pick up foul number three. Boom, or, boom. Or something like that. You know, yeah. You know, so the, the timing of his fouls sometimes and sometimes where he commits those fouls on the court are very frustrating. One of the other things that I, I feel like I, we've seen down the stretch, particularly in these last three games, um, is Tech's mental fortitude is lacking sometimes. I and see. I, well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, they, they came back against Duke. Uh, they hung in there and beat Virginia on the road. I wouldn't say it's a mental fortitude thing. I, I just think it's a, it's basketball. It's it's. But I, I feel like we've seen it multiple times this year where when things start to go downhill, there have been multiple occasions this year where they haven't been able to quickly then turn it around. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't call that mental from... fortitude. I would call that um, lack of uh, discipline and, you know, basketball IQ and things like that. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it mental fortitude. Okay. I mean, because, I mean, they, they were down against uh, against Carolina early and came back. Uh you know, they they trailed against Duke the entire game. Um, maybe and stayed in it. Maybe their mental uh, toughness is Men- inconsistent. Uh, ah, yeah, that, is, that, that, is that, that fair? That's that's fair because um, I I, noticed- I I wouldn't say fortitude because fortitude is is implies that they're not trying. Or, or okay, yeah, yeah, like yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I, I, I go ahead. Please. I think one of the most difficult things to find in in basketball, probably collegiate basketball, is the guy who refuses to let you lose. The guy who, when you're up twenty one on Notre Dame and they start to make a run, and things start to fall apart. The guy who's just going to make a play, and then make another play, and then make another play until Notre Dame just gives up. Yeah. You know, th- those guys are hard to find. And I also think that teams have different personalities. Um, now, granted, it was a 16-1 game, but I, I sat on the floor for Villanova and Radford, and Villanova was very businesslike. They just carved Radford up and spit them out. Um, I assume they're that way in most of their games. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, Virginia Tech, 
under Seth Greenberg, under um, uh, Buzz Williams. It tends to let emotion rule the day a little bit more. Uh, most teams do that, actually, particularly yeah. most college teams. Villanova goes to the NCAA tournament every year, you know. I mean, them playing against Radford at the NCAA tournament. They're just trying In to front of 20,000 people. Yeah. Psh, that's nothing. Yeah. That, that's like a slow Tuesday to those guys, you know. Colin Sexton, when, when Sexton picked up his second foul early in the first half, I noticed that J-Rob was really, really celebrating and was really, really excited about it. And I felt like that at that point, that was kind of an inkling into the window that Tech was a little too maybe, tense and maybe a little too emotional. Uh, you know, I, I, I intentionally... Maybe I'm nitpicking. With, with a few minutes left in in the Radford game, I uh, I went back through the tunnel on my side of the court and uh, went into the tunnel where Virginia Tech was going to run out on the court. Yeah. So they come up and... And they're all right in front of me. So I'm standing there next to the team for three to five minutes waiting for the Radford game to end so the Hokies could take the court. And uh, they were loose. They, they yeah. were very loose, and they seemed confident, and they seemed like they were having a, a, a good time. I, I didn't sense any tenseness from them at all. Uh, on the contrary, I, if anything, I would say that they were too loose. Okay. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, um, just from being – Well, they certainly came out and shot well. And, and, they and started right. out well. Right, right. And teams that shoot well, that does, I don't think that generally means they're not tense. Yeah. Um, but maybe their defense wasn't better because they were, you know, I, dialed in enough. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we're nitpicking one game too much. I think – Probably. Uh, well, I mean, and I, I, I and we say this every every time. Every, every time Virginia Tech loses a game and the fan breeze freaks out and said, oh, we're just going to make the NIT this year. That happened like – Three times at least. The three Florida times. State, Miami, and, but, UVA. But, right, and we have to sit here and say it's one game. You know, you, you can't freak out because of the results of one game. And and the only difference between losing to Alabama and losing to Florida State is this was the last game of the year. Yeah, yeah, and that's why you tend it to always hurts when you lose the last game of the year. But but everybody loses the last game of the year. Well, unless it, they don't true. make the postseason or they win the national. Yeah, title. but yeah. I I think part of the the frustration that came after the Bama game was that Tech lost. Three really disappointing games to finish the year. You had the second half collapse against Miami. Mm-hmm. You had the second half. Imp- second half of the second half against Notre Dame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the implosion against Notre Dame there. Um, and then you have this one where it wasn't like you, you like Tech had it in the bag, but you felt like that Tech just didn't play as well as they have been over yeah. the over the um, over the the last several games here. So the main question I want to ask is. How does Buzz get this team over the hump? Buzz has been to the tournament two years in a row now. Uh, given given the group that's going to come back next year, mm-hmm. I don't think it would surprise anyone if they make the tournament again for the third consecutive year, which something that hasn't been done in Texas. Never, never been done ever. as far as I know. Um, so how does Buzz get this team over the hump? And as soon as I asked this question, Will raised his hand like a four-year-old. So go ahead, Will. Just keep going. Keep going to the NCAA tournament. And so – Virginia Tech went ten and eight in the ACC this year, and that included losing a couple of games in a row here and there, and winning three games in a row here and there. Yeah, keep going to the NCAA tournament, and I'll bet when we look back in the future, and we let's take an eighteen game slice in the NCAA tournament at some point in the future. I hope I would love to be able to do that. Um, you're going to find some winning streaks in there if they keep going, just like if Virginia keeps going as a one seed and a two seed. They're going to make a Final Four. They're a really good basketball team. If Virginia Tech just keeps going to the NCAA tournament, 
they're probably going to make a sweet 16 at some point. You know, maybe, maybe, probably not better because getting to the Final Four is really, really hard. And that is a learned art. And it's also a bit of luck. It is, you know, and and so I mean they started they started off playing the ACC this year zero and two. Well, guess what? In the last two NCAA tournaments, they're zero and two. For all we know, they're going to go on a three game win streak next and make an elite eight next year. Yeah, I, just I, keep going. Just keep going. You're right. And I think Tech last year they lost two of three heading into the NCAA tournament. And this year I think they actually lost three of four heading into the NCAA tournament. Um, and and I, but two years ago they closed the regular season. Through the end of the regular season and the first game of the ACC tournament, they won, what, six in a row? I believe it was five regular season games in a row and, and six and in an a row. ACC now, and Florida State. Yes. Yeah, in the ACC so, tournament. So they, they were five and eight in the ACC, and then they ended up ten and, ten and eight. eight. And, 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 then won, and then beat Florida State in the ACC yeah, tournament. There yeah. were two wins over Florida State in that span. Um, so, yeah, you you if you go into the NCAA tournament in a portion of the season when you're playing well, you, you know, I mean, sometimes basketball is just – I mean, unless you're uber talented, you're you're just going to lose a certain number of games by default. Yeah, you know, and and, and you're going to win a certain number of games. Nobody by expects default. anybody in the major leagues to go 162 and 0. No, you know, I mean, no. they don't. I mean, I remember the, the you know that 2001 Seattle Mariners team won 116 games, but when they made the, when they got to the playoffs, they got knocked out in the first round. Yeah, you know, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, it, it is a single it, elimination type deal i mean you lose you're done and and anybody can lose on any given day I mean, especially think about yeah, especially it. in the ncaa tournament think about, <laughs> it. think about it virginia and north carolina are playing in charlotte in the opening rounds and they both neither one of them yeah. advances past charlotte yeah. acc country you would think they would right yeah i mean it, 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 i had arizona in my title game in my bracket and they got knocked out in the first round not just knocked out they got completely pantsed well, by well, buffalo well, and sometimes it's just you know the luck of the draw to a certain extent. You know, so apparently Virginia just Virginia got the choice of playing in Pittsburgh or Charlotte, right? And they chose Charlotte. Uh, if they had chosen Pittsburgh, they would have had got to play a play-in game winner, and they'd have gotten to play Radford. They would have gotten to play Radford, and as it turns out, you know, they they wouldn't have if the committee had Virginia Tech in eight seed, they would not have put Virginia Tech in Pittsburgh to match up possibly with UVA in the second round. They would have probably sent Virginia Tech to Charlotte to play Kansas State, a Kansas State team that can't score. <laughs> a Kansas State team that is actually smaller than Virginia Tech's team that can't score. It's crazy to I think mean, how someone right. could be smaller. And, and that's how the NCAA tournament I works. Mean, right. So, I mean, Virginia's decision to play in Charlotte instead of Pittsburgh might have might have cost them a trip to the Sweet 16, Elite yeah, Eight, or Final possibly. Four, and it might have cost Virginia Tech a first-round win. I mean, it's uh, it's it's crazy how, how things work out. So let's go back to that Notre Dame game for a second. Uh, Virginia Tech led by 21 points with 15 minutes left to go and lost. Well, guess what? Cincinnati, a two-seed, yeah. was ahead by 22 points with 10 minutes left to go yeah. and Cincinnati's lost. a great defensive team. Yeah. That was what was so shocking about it. They're, they're suffocating their, on defense. They are. Yeah, that, that's been their calling card our year. all year. And I actually almost picked Cincinnati to go to like the Final Four, and I, I changed it at the last it minute. It wouldn't have been a bad pick. But at this point, my bracket is toast anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, let's go ahead and wrap that up. Before we get into spring football, which spring practice started – over the weekend, I do want to hit on Virginia Tech wrestling. They were in Cleveland at the NCAA Championships uh, starting on Thursday, running through Sunday, uh, or excuse me, Saturday night. Um, Virginia Tech places eighth overall in the team. Uh, Jared Hawk went the farthest. He went all the way to the, the national final. I believe it was at 190 or 184, 194? Well, 184, I 184. believe. 184. 
um, that fell just short to a wrestler from NC State, a guy that he had beaten twice already this year. He falls 3-1 there. Uh, Tech had three All-Americans, Jared Hawd, Dave McFadden, and Zach Zabatsky. Tech sent nine wrestlers overall, and seven or of those nine qualifiers, seven of them are returning, including McFadden and Zavatsky, who were All-Americans. Um, we kind of hit on this before the NCAA championships, but it seems like Roby's been able to really kind of just pick up right where Dresser left off. And I know that they were the All-American total was lower than it had been in the last several years. But considering that this wrestling team was starting five freshmen in, in their lineup for just about all, all the season, it seems like Roby had a really good success this year. Uh, at the NCAA championships, you know, it, it's very hard to follow the wrestling championships when you're in Pittsburgh yeah. doing your NCAA work and, and driving and everything. My my take on kind of watching, following things a little bit on Twitter was it was kind of feast or famine. They had guys drop down into the wrestlebacks, which is the loser's bracket in other sports, and then get eliminated quickly. In the past, Virginia Tech had had guys fall down into the wrestlebacks and then make a lot of progress and score a lot of points that way and help them finish. I think the year they finished fourth, that was kind of the situation. Yeah. Well, this year they had a bunch of guys fall into the wrestlebacks and get eliminated quickly, but they had three guys go all the way to the national semifinals in their weight class, and Hot was the only one to make it to the final in his weight class. Um, watching the conversation on the wrestling board on, on our site, um, the question was asked, so now it's been a year, how do you feel about the coaching transition from uh, from Dresser to Roby. And what, what were people saying? Was it a plus? Was it a minus? And they said, well, at this point, he's he's kept the momentum going. It's going to all come down to recruiting. Can he recruit? And they, 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 the opinion on the board from the guys that really follow the program is that this staff can clearly coach, that wrestlers got better this year, and, uh, and they were happy with that part of the operation. And that happens when you bring in guys who are, you know, all Americans, multiple time All Americans, guys like Molinar and Freyer. Yeah, you know th- th- those guys have pretty good resumes in terms of wrestling. Yeah, so and th- and that those guys are part of the Southeast Regional Training Center that we talked about, and so uh, you know it's it's very hard to break out of that top six to eight positions and go further up than that. You Virginia know, Tech, or not Virginia, collegiate wrestling is almost like collegiate women's basketball. The ones at the top, in the sense dominate. that the ones at the top are clearly. Yeah. Well, miles ahead of everyone else. Tell him the numbers about uh, Penn State's, <laughs> um, their version of certs. So the regional training centers are, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know if affiliated is even the proper word, but each each college wrestling pro- program runs a regional training center. And the guys on the wrestling board were going through. Now, these are um, nonprofit organizations, so you can look their tax returns up online. And, and, and they're separate from the athletic department. Yes, Correct. completely yeah. they're, separate. They're a completely independent thing. They're nonprofit, so they have to submit tax reports, returns, which you can look up. And they're based off donations, yeah. private donations. Yeah, they run off of donations. Um, so they, the guys on the board looked up the 2015 returns, the most recently available ones for uh, you know a lot of the top uh, programs in the country. And Penn State, national champion six out of the last seven years, in 2015, three years ago, reported assets for their regional training center of, I believe it was $5.9 million. And that's that's kind of an endowment, although they've probably built a building that may be part of those assets. The next closest program had assets of $600,000. Wow. So Penn State is 10 times 
richer than number two. <laughs> yeah. So and, they're, and no wonder they're they're up there winning yeah. national titles every year. And that's part of the reason why they have some of the best wrestlers in the country and then some of the best high school wrestlers in the country commit and sign and go to Penn State, even though they're behind guys that they're, they're never going to beat out until those guys are gone. Yeah. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's a it's a rich-get-richer situation, you know. And, and we've talked about Penn State before, how – Somebody dropped a hundred million dollars so they could start a uh, ice hockey program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. M- money cures a lot, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially in college athletics. The, the big schools over the last ten to fifteen years, uh, uh, you know, uh, have have turned it into a money game. And if you don't have it, you're not gonna, you can't win a national. It's an arms race, man. Yeah, I mean, that's just the way it is. Your richest programmers are gonna win all the national championships these days. That's the that's just the way it is. Um, like if Virginia Tech decided to cancel four or five sports and throw all the resources from all those sports into one other sport, then they would have might maybe have a chance to win a national championship in that sport. But at Virginia Tech, there's not enough money to go around to support, to actually be compete for, a, to be legitimate competitors for a national championship um, with, you know, what, a, probably a $90 million budget right now spread amongst uh, 20, 20 different varsity 21 sports. or something like that. Yeah. I, th- I think I read a little bit the other day. I didn't know uh, if, if I – I believe that in order to be FBS level, that you have to sponsor, in other words, support at, at the at the Division One level. I believe it was 16 or 17 sports. Mm-hmm. So if you look in the SEC, you see a lot of schools that do 17 sports. Yeah, yeah the bare minimum. You know, and they and they funnel it. And, and where, where this – you know, you look at what Frank Beamer did in, in the early, mid-'90s up through about 2005 – he built Virginia Tech into a, into a program that was sniffing national championships. I actually played for one one year. But that was really before the TV money really started to kick in big time and the SEC and Big Ten networks launched. ESPN became the SEC's mouthpiece. You know, and ever, ever since the TV money has really kicked in and, and, you know, schools in the SEC and Big Ten get 40 to $45 million in media money every year. And in the ACC, they get about $25 million. That's a huge difference, you know. And, and it doesn't even get into the other things like donations and ticket sales and stuff like that. It sounds that. like so, this is going to be a, a, a whole episode of a podcast this offseason in terms of talking about the, the money in college athletics. But let's go ahead and wrap up that. Um, congrats to Virginia Tech Wrestling for another good season. That's their sixth straight uh, season finishing inside the top ten at the NCAA championship. So that's a pretty good season for the Hokies under the first year of Tony Roby. Uh, again, so Virginia Tech football practice started Saturday. Um, they uh, will really, I think they have what, 15, is it uh, spring practices that they're actually allowed to have? That includes the spring game. Yes, it, yes, it does. So uh, kind of some takeaways from Monday's press conference. I know that you guys weren't there. Or Wait, Chris, were you there on Monday for the press conference? No. I don't believe we were because you guys were leaving the next day for yeah. Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. So there, there were a few things that I really want to hit on out of that press conference, things that really caught my eye. The first thing is that Josh Jackson is indeed going into this quarterback competition with a leg up, clearly, and the coaches said so. Um, they talked about how Josh Jackson has proven certain things already and that they don't need to see that out of him this spring and that they're going to try and put the um, the other two guys, Ryan Willis and Hendon Hooker, in those positions, in similar positions, to see if they can prove it as well. But uh, do you think that Josh Jackson has kind of earned a leg up on the other guys? Yeah, I mean, he started for a year. I mean, I, I, so by default, yes. I mean, okay. Uh, I don't think 
it's not necessarily that he was great. I mean, he was solid when he was healthy, but it's not like they've done anything to prove that they're even with Jackson at this point. They're yeah. going to they're going to be given the opportunity to prove that this spring, and if they do, then the real competition starts in August. One of the other things is that Virginia Tech is at least publicly more worried about their defensive end depth than they are defensive tackle. Hmm. Which and is interesting. and I'm really I, I, it really perplexed me that we we asked them about it and and um Bud and Fuente basically said that they're they're more worried about the defensive ends right now with uh, Taiwan Garbett, Nathan Proctor, Zion DeBose. Uh, sounds like Housing um, uh, Gaines and Emmanuel Belmar have kind of clearly separated themselves um, above those three, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern right now at defensive tackle, and I'm really, really just perplexed I, by that. I, yeah, I am too, because honestly, I, I know guys like uh, um, Zion DeBose and Taiwan Garbett and Nathan Proctor are young, but but they're talented players. And yeah. After Jared Hewitt, I just don't see any talent at defensive tackle for Virginia Tech after those first three guys. And and to and to their credit, that they did say that they feel like Jared Hewitt has become a bit of a leader. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. offseason, I'm okay and, with and, and, and that's a good thing for Virginia Tech because they if if you're being if you are pr- uh, promoting a player publicly as a leader, that generally means that he can at least hold his own in the football field. Right. So that's a good thing that that they mm-hmm. feel comfortable about him, but. Once you get past him at that fourth guy, who's it going to be? Right now it sounds like Xavier Burke is who they're counting on, but Burke yeah. is on his third position. He's in his fourth year in the program. Um, I don't think he's really a reliable guy there just yet. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if it turned out to be Cam Good. Yeah, it, very, it, it seems like he hasn't even enrolled. Yeah, and, and, and that's the other thing is that you might have to rely on a guy who hasn't who isn't even here yet. And it used to be back in the day that Virginia Tech never – played true freshman defensive tackles. And I think they broke that streak in 2010 when they played Derek Hopkins as a true freshman. And then the next year they broke it again when they played uh, Corey Marshall as a true freshman and Luther Matty as as a true freshman. Mm -hmm. Um, And ever since then they've they've been more open to playing true freshman defensive tackles. Maybe that's just because they haven't recruited as well at at, at the position. Yeah. Um, But – for years and years and years, I don't remember any true freshman defensive tackles playing during the Beamer Bowl era before Derek Hopkins. What about Jonathan Lewis? Uh, John, you're right. John, John, I think you have to go back to the Lewis brothers, Jonathan right. Lewis and Kevin Lewis. So you're talking about two, maybe three guys within a, goodness, a 18-year period. I mean, it just didn't happen very often. It seems like it's happening more and more these days. Um, well, I tried to look it up to see if Jonathan Jonathan Lewis had played as a true freshman. He but, did. Um, in 2002, he played as a true freshman. I wonder, a, I wonder if Cam Good can uh, just, just give him a few plays here and there. You know, he hasn't been in a college strength and conditioning program. We've gone over how phenomenal his athleticism is, uh, yeah. the, the stuff that was published in, in his recruiting profile about vertical jump. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, he, he's, a, he's one of the better – uh, high school defensive tackle athletes. Just, if you just look at the testing numbers, he's a better athlete than Tim Settle. If you just look at yeah. the testing numbers. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is, for me, is that at defensive tackle, right now you're going to have to rely on Vinny Mahota as a starter. Mm-hmm. Vinny Mahota is, A, switching positions. which be and, and granted, it's not as big of a switch because end and tackle in Virginia Tech systems are somewhat similar. Well, and he started out at tackle. System, yeah. He's played tackle before, and he's going to be big enough to play yeah, tackle. But the issue that worries me is that he tore his ACL at the end of, in November. Right. So, 
I don't know if you can necessarily count on him to be ready in he'll, September and Labor Day. I think he'll be ready. Um, I don't think you know. I don't think he's going to be some kind of mobile. And he certainly isn't a guy player. that you can rely on for ninety percent of the snaps at tackle, like like Walker and Settle were playing maybe, last year. Maybe not. Um, I, to me, the biggest concern is. Yeah, you, you might be right about that, and I think Hewitt can can play quality reps this year, but. I don't know who that fourth tackle is going to be. Not that the fourth tackle has to play a ton of reps, but what if somebody gets hurt? Then he's going to have to. Yeah. I mean, what if Ricky Walker gets hurt? One of the things that Virginia Tech got the luckiest last year was that Tim Settle and Ricky Walker went through the entire season without an injury that kept them off the field. Tim they, Settle, they didn't even appear to be dinged up. Uh, well, Settle was Settle, limping around the Georgia Tech game. Settle of course, me, everybody limps around against Georgia Settle Tech. Settle told That's me that against Georgia Tech, he suffered a, an injury that was really – bothering him, but but he stayed on the he stayed on the field and kept playing but uh but yeah so tech's defensive tackle depth just isn't there and i'm just really surprised that at least publicly at least towards the media tech doesn't seem to be all that worried about especially it. when you're breaking in a brand new mic right behind them yeah you know uh no matter who it is they're going to be brand yeah, new yeah, i think uh i actually do think virginia tech will be better from a physical standpoint against the run against at the mic spot this year, but whoever that mic is will make more mental mistakes than Andrew Matuapaka just just from a experience, experience standpoint. Yeah. Um, so I and ideally, you know, you don't want an inexperienced mic playing behind defensive tackles that that lack depth, or if Ricky Walker gets hurt and you have to play guys who just aren't ready yet. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't. That's what they're saying publicly. That publicly they seem more worried about defensive end, but uh, personally, I'm still more worried about defensive tackle. Uh, I would totally agree yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I just uh, to me, I, I, I actually think defensive end is going to be a huge strength for this team this year. I'm I'm I'm, 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 I'm certain that at least one of those retro freshman defensive end will, will will be ready to be a solid backup for Tech this year. I, I'll be fine with that. I, I mean, I, I think one of at least one of those guys will be Trevon Hill level. When Trevon Hill was a redshirt freshman, yeah, and, 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 he and, and you know he should be getting better, and he's going to sit out the spring. It, well, if he could just have a healthy off season, I think yeah, he could be man. a really good player. He's but been, he's he been keep, battling shoulder injuries he, he, for he keeps a while. going through off season, so he can't go through the strength and conditioning program from lifting weights, and it's really it's li- limits him from a certain extent to a from a strength standpoint. Yeah, because he, he just keeps, his speed is still there, but yeah, he, he can't he's do not it. as physical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to see if he's able to keep up that level. One of the other things is that, and Chris, you wrote a whole article on this, Devin Hunter moving to whip Nickelback from the Rover spot. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably going to be the starter at whip Nickel, I would, I would assume, this spring, spring since yeah. Luke Reynolds is out. Um, oh, I really wish we could go to scrimmages. I, know. I, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you seem pretty excited about him moving to whip Nickel. He's he was he was just a big time recruit and uh, very quiet last year, you know, and and that's one year of his eligibility gone. Yeah, well, I, I want to see what he can teams. do. Battling concussion and hamstring problems and all that, uh, I think it's good. It'll be good for his psyche to get him in a starting role this spring. Yeah, give, give confidence. R- r- rather than going through the entire spring as Reggie Floyd's backup and him thinking, man, the guy in front of me is just one year older. At this rate, mm. I'm never going to start until I'm a senior. Yeah, and I think that's bad for a guy's psyche, especially when he was a big time recruit. Mm-hmm. And big time recruits all expect to play because they all do their recruiting interviews the day they sign and say, <laughs> three or "Well, four three years. or four years, I'll be there," you know, because they all think they're going to the NFL. So it's so getting him on, on the field helps his psyche. And if he plays well, he's not going to beat out Mook. 
because I don't think at least. Um, and now Mook he, is a really good nickel. He, he is a really he is really good. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, if somehow Hunter did look great, absolutely great there, then you could move Mook to corner. Yeah, yeah. Um, theoretically, theoretically, sure. you yeah. could. Um, He's got the athleticism for it. And if he plays, uh, if he plays well at what nickel, then you know Reggie Floyd at Rover is going to say, "Oh, I better step up because once if they move him back to Rover." He's going to be competing with me, and he looks really good. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so I think it's I think it's best for all parties. Uh, you know, there, there are times where you don't want guys to get hurt, but there are times where injuries are good for overall team development. And Mook Reynolds doesn't need any. We're talking about practice here, right? <laughs> Mook, Mook Reynolds we're talking about practice. Mook, man. Re- Mook Reynolds is a not a game. Se- Mook Reynolds is a senior. He knows how to play. He's he's started for two years now, and then played a lot as a freshman before that. He he doesn't need these reps in the spring. This this is becoming more and more Justin Fuente's team with his players. Is is the larger point here? There's been an exodus of talent out of the program in the last couple of years. That were all Frank's Isaiah guys. Ford, Ford Cam, Bucky Hodges, Cam, Bucky, Teller, Tim Settle, Tim Settle Miller, yeah, Phillips, Faison, Stroman. Yep. These were all Beamer recruited guys, you yeah. know, and, and now it's becoming more and more Fuente's program, and that includes Devin Hunter. Yeah, so. yeah, it does. I mean, he he was the first kind of premier recruit that Fuente was able to sign, so we'll have to see if he's able to make an impact this spring. The last thing that really stood out to me from Monday's press conference is that. Uh, Justin Fuente and Brad Cornelson are really challenging DeAndre Planton and Tyrell Smith this spring to step it up. Yeah. Um, they, they, I can't remember which if it was Brad or Fuente, but one of them used the put up or shut up phrase. And generally, when coaches are throwing that out there, it's a it's a bit of a challenge to those guys <laughs> that it's time for you to contribute. And if you look at both of those guys, they've been in the program a few years now. Uh, Tyrell was supposed to start at right tackle last year, got hurt, lost the job to Kyle Chung. DeAndre Planton filled in at the end of the year uh, in in place of Parker Osterlo, who was replacing Joshua Nijman. Uh, do you think either of those guys can contribute this year? I think Planton will start. I don't know where it'll be. I think it'll either be left guard or right tackle. He's played guard in the past. He played left tackle uh, when Nijman got hurt this past year. He split time with Parker Osterlo out there. Um I would like to see him at right tackle. I'm betting he spends most of his spring at left guard and right tackle, and they try to find figure out which spot is best for him. Yeah, and, 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 and if it's a right it, tackle, then they can move Kyle Chung to center. And that's the thing. A lot of it will guard. just depend on who their best five are because yeah. Chung can play just about all four. He can play four I'll, positions. I'll, right. I'll, I'll put it this way. I think there's three guys, you know, really that, that could start who could play right tackle, and that's uh, that's Chung, Smith, that's Plant, and Plant. Right, right. So, yeah, you got to figure out uh, how those guys fit and everything uh, yeah you, know. you have guys you can move around and guys you can't move around right, and right. the guys you can't move around you really want them to step up yeah. so then you can move the guys around that you can move around that's one of the nice things about getting chung back for his yeah. six years because he can he can play guard he's done it he can play center he's done it and he just started a year at right tackle mm-hmm. so he's got experience and he's good enough to fill in at four spots. You don't want him playing left tackle. Right. But he can play <laughs> four spots on that offensive line, and that allows you to move guys like Planton or Tyrell Smith around in case their best fit is guard or tackle. Yeah, it's good to have those swing guys up it front. It is. Especially, well, you Kyle, know, Kyle Chung is the definition of a swing man yeah, on the he, line. Yeah, he really is. And, you know, Tyrell Smith has a little bit of that about him, too. He's played some guard and tackle for Virginia Tech. And, and honestly, Planton is a guy who's played guard and tackle in practice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've seen him play tackle. Um, but 
can he play? Is could he be a better guard? I, I don't That's know. That's something that Vance Vice has tried to do since he got here. Is he's forced everyone on the line to play a different spot right. than what they're used to. Right. I mean, Wyatt Teller's told stories about him start playing center and tackle in practice, and they've he's told stories about how they'll just shift everyone one spot, one over, spot over just to just to force them to to learn something new and. Mm-hmm. And that kind of builds that um, that that depth, or even though you're not building depth in terms of numbers, but you're building depth in terms of guys that can do different things. It means it's really hard to be deep on the offensive line these days. Yeah. There's just so few quality linemen, and it takes a long time to. Develop Everyone's them. struggling to find so, linemen, right? So you're you're never going to have a full two deep of offensive linemen who can help who can play. Um, but if you have seven guys who can all play multiple positions then by default you are too deep on the offensive line, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's the way to go about things these days. And and the, and the bottom line is, uh, for the most part, you're playing different positions, but in these days of zone blocking schemes and everything like that, you know, you can either block or, or, or you can't. you got to get used to playing next to the guy with you. But I think during the course of spring, I, I, don't, I think it's nothing but, but, but good during the course of the spring if you're moving guys around. Um, I, I, ju- I just think it helps you get a better feel for what each one of your guys can do. And then when you get to the fall, when August practice starts, you can kind of hit the ground running and have a much better idea of what you have. And, and But, you know, it's, it starts in the spring by just figuring out the strengths and weaknesses of each one of your players. Definitely. So here, here's a little history lesson that you can file away and things that will probably never happen again. Um, <laughs> I remember the 2000 season tech had a really deep offensive line and, and it was so deep and that, that got all the, uh, what season? 2000. 2000. Um, and that got all the preseason press cause they were going to be blocking for Michael Vick and, uh, I guess Lee Suggs. And I actually tracked how much the guys played that year because, uh, um, the, uh, uh, Hokie Sports, the newspaper, the Hokie Huddler, whatever they were calling it at the time. And then they didn't really have their official website ramped up to this level of detail, I don't think. But you could find the number of snaps played each game for each week player. Week by week basis, week the Hokie Huddler basis. would come out and for each position. Every Did play snap team. counts? So yeah, snap great counts. stuff. Man. Both offensive Wouldn't and defense awesome? and special teams. Yeah. And, and, they, that be awesome? and they would break sure. it down from, you know, line of scrimmage or special teams also. Get on that, Virginia. So I tracked everything that year. And, and Tech, their five starting offensive linemen, uh, the guards and tackles played 65% of the plays, and their backups played 35% of the plays, which is a – that's a huge rotation. It is. And it, at, the that was like mid-90s Nebraska offensive line. Yeah, that was, that was – <laughs> And at center, it was an 80-20 split. So your starting center was 80% while your guards and tackles were 65%. And then on the backups, your backup center was 20% while your guards and tackles were 35%. I believe that broke down to hundreds of snaps for the backups, which, man, you just don't see that these days unless somebody's nope. hurt. Yeah, yeah, really. You had a guy like Matt Winsick who was a who was like a redshirt junior that year who went on to start the next year as a redshirt senior. He was a really good player. But could you know he couldn't get into the starting lineup that year, and you know Tech just blew people out that year, man. With the exception, and that's of, another reason those guys played a lot. They were blowing people out. Yeah, right. That that that's 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 part of it. I mean, when you're up by fifty in the fourth quarter, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, you're you're going to do that. But, when you're up fifty man, to whatever against UNC, so you had yeah. So, so you but had but, that but, but even if this coaching staff was blowing people out, I don't think they'd play ten offensive linemen that much. So anyway, go ahead. 
that uh, just a little reminiscing here, but man, so you talk about an offensive line that good. That was a dominant run blocking offensive line, yeah. and they were blocking for Lee Suggs and Andre Kendrick, and Michael Vick was the quarterback, and Andre Davis was the wide receiver. And those tight ends were good. Every time those tight ends caught a pass, it was for 20 yards. Yeah. Man, that was a good offense. Y'all have gone fully back in the time can you machine imagine, Can you imagine all those players in a modern offense? Yeah. Man. Michael Vick in a modern offense would be would be very interesting to see. S- awesome. Suggs was really a uh, an I-formation guy. Was, yeah. you know, Suggs, I don't know how good he'd be in today's spread offenses. He'd, he'd be good, but how good? You know, I yeah. don't know. But Michael Vick, come on, man. <laughs> that would be nuts. And Andre Kendrick was good running the option, so I think he would have been, been good in a spread yeah, offense. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this podcast. So quickly, let's wrap it up. Uh, Thursday, we'll have a media availability. One of the scheduled guests is Dylan Rivers. I'm excited to talk to yeah. him. I'm looking forward to, to that. He's a, a guy we didn't get to talk to at all last year, and he has a chance to start this year. So we'll see uh, what he has to say. Um, there will be an open practice afterwards, or at least part of the practice will be open. So we'll get to see a little bit. Not sure exactly what we're going to get to see. Warm-ups. Probably, if it's anything like Stretches. The, if it's anything we'll, like the we'll last We'll be sure to report on who stretches best. <laughs> we'll know who looks good in their uniform. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, also uh, Thursday night at 7 p.m., Virginia Tech women's basketball faces Fordham in the Sweet 16 of the WNIT. This could be the second straight year they've made a run in the WNIT, and I know it's the WNIT, and there's 64 teams in it, but when you're building a program and you make a a postseason run in anything, it does help. So uh, that'll be um, Thursday at 7 p.m. inside Castle. They've already clinched 20 wins for the season. That's the second straight year under Kenny, Uh, so they're definitely making progress there. We'll see how they do. What year is Taylor Emery? Taylor Emery is a junior because she was a transfer, so she'll be a senior. They bring a lot back next year. They do. She's worth seeing play. In fact, they don't have a single player on the roster that is scheduled to leave right now. Good, excellent. So it'll be, and they're bringing in a good recruit. They've got um, the. Are they, are they redshirting some uh, transfers or recruits who are? Yes, they have. Uh, in fact, two bigs that are redshirting this year, and they have the New Jersey Gatorade Player of the Year coming next year two years Dar- in a row Dar- right Dar- didn't she win it last year also i believe she did yeah i, I think she she's did. won it twice and, in and a her row her sister plays at notre dame and she's pretty good so if she's in if half as good as her sister she'll be able to make an impact for kenny brooks and virginia tech women's basketball but that's all the time we have for this one uh we'll have a new podcast next week we'll have full coverage of virginia tech football spring practices this week and towards the end of the week as we get the open practice but Until then, for Will Stewart, for Chris Coleman, and for myself, Ricky the Blue, thanks for listening.